Hey everyone, I just want to start this episode with a quick disclaimer. We experienced an audio malfunction. As you all know, I'm new to podcasting and I accidentally recorded this episode on my end using the default microphone in the laptop rather than the podcast quality audio mic that we use in all the other episodes. And we've done everything we can to salvage the conversation so that it's still listenable. To be totally honest, this is my favorite conversation we've recorded so far. So I really hope this doesn't prevent you from enjoying Dave's awesome insights and uh, and ideas. And if this is your first time tuning into our podcast, none of the other episodes sound like this. So don't expect this to happen again. We have the problem identified and corrected, and I hope you enjoy. Bitcoin is better pretty simply because the government can't print more. I wouldn't say this helped me conceptualize this. Many years later, I realized what I had gone through. So this is a story from like, you know, late 90s when I was in high school. I was playing a lot of uh, a game called Diablo 2 and got a pretty first-hand experience through that game with the emergent properties of money and how better money emerges to take over hard money. Episode six of the Block Reward podcast. Our guest is Dave Bradley. Dave is a really, really old school Bitcoiner going way back to 2010. He's somebody who has been very active in sort of Bitcoin thought leadership for over a decade. And he's somebody who has blown my mind a number of times. Dave and I are going to be talking today about a concept called absolute scarcity. And it's sort of trying to make sense of what it means to have access to a finite money and a money that is not only finite, but is also really pretty easy to access. And so it's a big topic and I hope you guys enjoy Dave's way of thinking and looking at Bitcoin as much as I do. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Guest this week is Dave Bradley. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Dave, we've been talking about Bitcoin for a long time, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have you have you join us. You're somebody who's been in Bitcoin forever, and uh, probably you're probably the oldest, the longest living Bitcoiner that I personally have met myself. So really excited to uh, yeah, you've you've expanded my mind a, a number of different times, and uh, hopefully we can do that for some listeners today. Uh, before we get started, how about you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and. And how you got into Bitcoin? Sure. I've been in Bitcoin since uh, 2010. Um, I got in mining in my basement and started selling online. And then that kind of transitioned into selling through uh, a number of different companies, a couple of which that I founded. It uh, started with one called Bitcoin Brains, which was one of the first brick and mortar stores anywhere in the world. Uh, we later founded, merged a part of that company into form what is now Bull Bitcoin. Then most recently, I was with uh, Bitcoin Well as the chief revenue officer there. So. I've been uh, all over the industry, and I've been full-time in the industry for about 10 years now. And you're also a, uh, a massive advocate for Bitcoin and involved in uh, Canadian Blockchain Consortium. And maybe just tell us a little bit about your, your efforts and endeavors in, uh, in the sort of regulatory space. Yeah, I've, I've worked for a while trying to sort of push for some sane regulations as it relates to Bitcoin. And we've had a little bit of success with that in that Canada regulates custodians, which I view to be a pretty risky behavior, differently than companies that do not hold your Bitcoin. But yeah, it's been a little bit of a long road on the regulation, and you never know. Like the regulators are sometimes they're reasonable, sometimes they're not. And so you mentioned that uh, you've been in Bitcoin since 2010. So, so you're just a, about you're, you're among the first people that sort of discovered Bitcoin. And how did you how did you first how did you first find out about Bitcoin? 
Um, I was like looking up video cards for gaming and found in a forum that I was reading some mention of being able to mine Bitcoin with certain cards. And this was right around the time when uh, Bitcoin mining had launched on GPUs. And yeah, so I, I bought a bit more expensive GPU than I had planned and started mining them. And uh, the first one paid for itself super fast. And I was like, this is a pretty good deal. So I, at the start, I had no, you know what, like a lot of people who get into Bitcoin, I was looking for like a quick way to make some money, quick way to make some dollars. And uh, it worked for that purpose. But then it took actually several years before I really figured out like what the whole point was. That's a great segue to my next question, um, which is what what is Bitcoin to you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's pretty simple at this point. Uh, Bitcoin is money and money is not an investment. It's not like a stock or a bond. There's no yield. There's no rights that are conferred by owning Bitcoin other than the ownership of the Bitcoin itself. And point of money is to take the value that you create with your time and store it to use it later. And if you're trying to do that with dollars, you're going to have a bad time because as you are attempting to store your value, the government's just printing more dollars. And so, you know, we leads to inflation like we're seeing right now. And so Bitcoin is better pretty simply because the government can't print more. Finite money. There's a really interesting conversation to be had. And, and we're going to do something that's a little bit different for this show as far as the episodes that we've recorded already. And we're, we're going to try to have a conversation around a, a specific topic today that is central to understanding uh, the value proposition of finite money. And that is a, a subject that is defined as a, the topic for today is absolute scarcity and what it means to have a finite money. And um, as we move through this conversation, you mentioned the GPUs. You have a great story about this that, I, that it sounds like helped you first conceptualize what is money. And it starts with the Stone of Jordan. Yeah, this actually, I, I wouldn't say this helped me conceptualize this. Um, many years later, I realized what I had gone through with this. So this is a story from like, you know, late 90s, um, when I was in high school, I was playing a lot of uh, a game called Diablo 2 and got a pretty first-hand experience through that game with the emergent properties of money and how better money emerges to take over hard money. So if, and I, I think that's got a lot of comparisons to what we're going through right now, right? So we, you know, we were playing this game, Diablo, you've got all these different different items, you've got an in-game currency. And very early when the game launched, uh, it became currency was not going to be valuable. You know, it was just way too scarce. You could buy some things in the game, but no players would accept this in-game currency from each other for, for any kind of good items. And so early on, it was all pretty much like a barter economy, like you trade one item for another. But as people sort of started to figure out the economy, a form of money kind of naturally emerged. And that was this thing that you mentioned called the Stone of Jordan. And the thing that makes that story interesting to me is because it runs a lot of parallels with, I think, what we're going through with our money right now. And so, you know, we were in this position, players of the game, where what we were being told was the money was just way too plentiful and they printed way too much of it. And this is a very extreme example compared even to our, our current excessive money printing in Canada right now. You know, it was, it was many, many thousands of percents inflation rather than the fairly shocking inflation that we're, we're going through right now. But yeah, essentially this, this item, the Stone of Jordan, 
just did a better job of meeting all of the criteria to be a good money than anything else in the game had done. And so it was pretty interesting because, you know, there's, there's a couple very key properties that something needs in order to be money. And the Stone of Jordan was a pretty good version of all of those things. So first and foremost, as compared to the regular like in-game gold, was that it was scarce. You know, it was very hard to, to find these things. And uh, as compared to the gold, they were very rare. And so they were valuable. And that value tended to hold, like it tended to hold its value because they were so hard to find. So very early on, that was sort of the first detail that to make it useful. So the market on its own figured out that the, the, the Stone of Jordan was just, it, it, you had to work harder to earn it. And they were harder to find. Yeah, and that was the first property. But there were some others that also, like it lined up really well with the kind of properties that make Bitcoin useful right now. And so, as I mentioned, the first property was that it was rare. And so it was able to be a solid store of value. And then once people started using it as a store of value, it started to become useful as a unit of account. And that's one of the other very necessary pillars of a good form of money is that it, it stores its value and then later becomes the unit of account. And so what that means is that people were pricing their items of Stones of Jordan. So you had a certain sword that everybody knew or something like that, and it would be seven Stones of Jordan or whatever. And that was that was really the basis for the whole economy, which started out as a store value, moved into a unit of account, and then the third one being a medium of exchange, meaning we used it for payments, essentially, was just part of the in-game mechanics. And then additionally, it had some properties that, that mirrored good money, uh, much like Bitcoin. One was that it was completely fungible, meaning that every single one of these was the same. So, you know, you, you had uh, at times in history when things like gold coins were used as money, not every gold coin was equal. And so people used to have to weigh them out and all this stuff. And that's part of what made uh, paper bills an effective form of money was because they, you know, you didn't have to perform some kind of complex forensics every time you did a, a transaction, right? So these stones of Jordan were easy to verify. You know, you could just, see them in your inventory and they were pretty easy to transport which was because they were a, they were they were a ring so they're a small item in the game and so all of those all of those factors kind of combined to make it the best money in the game and people just sort of naturally chose this right and and that's throughout history how most of the time up until you know the last 150 years or so most of the money that the world has used has just naturally emerged like that it's it's not been a delegated thing and the word fiat which uh we used to describe our, our currency now fiat currency actually means by decree and so up until fiat currency was invented it was just something that that people naturally decided on based on the market and based on on the needs of the users and now that's all been taken away with this concept of, of fiat by decree, which means that, uh, you know, we've got someone deciding who the money is. And in this case, it's, you know, the government, the central banks. So, so they, they've, they've created a monopoly on the, on the creation of money, which has stripped away the market's ability to determine on its own what good money is. Yeah, it has. It has, it has stripped away the market's ability to determine this, and it has removed money that was better in many ways in the form of gold, which was our currency for most of human history. You know, it's been a long time since we were on a gold standard and fiat currency was able to use a lot of those properties that it does very well to compete with gold. And so, you know, banknotes were more convenient. 
they're fungible, they're a lot easier to transport, they're easier to verify. And for those reasons, they became very convenient. And, you know, we see that with all of our, our current payment systems, right? Like our, our debit, our visa, whatnot, like that's all very convenient, but we've traded the number one core element of money for all of those conveniences. And that's that store value that money is supposed to perform for us. And, you know, I think we're all like really probably anyone in the world right now, Canadians are, are doing okay compared to some other countries out there, but we're all feeling the, the, the crush of inflation and it's not moving in the right direction. It's, it's not getting better. Right. It, it's a one way, it, this is a one way street, right? As monies lose their value. And, and this is something that has been progressive and it's been happening for a long time. It's just, it's just the rate at which it happens. And it's like, I think in the West, people, you know, it's sort of the goal with at a 2% inflation target, you lose half the value of your money every 35 years. And maybe that's just long enough and it's just slow enough that nobody starts a revolution, basically. And, and it, yeah. it starts to creep into five, eight, 20, and now it's noticeable, right? The prices of things are changing dramatically within much shorter time cycles. It's, it's an interesting thing. You, you mentioned fungibility. And you know, I, as a former kind of video gamer myself, it is the thing where in-game items get generated and they don't have the same, so the same in a different game, the same magic item might have different benefits, like uh, whatever, uh, different, different. Yeah, that was true in Diablo 2 as well. And so that was what made it a better form of money than a lot of other items in the game. You know, they're, they're and, and it, it also sort of fell naturally into the right level of scarcity because there were some items that were so rare that they couldn't have been useful as, as money because they wouldn't have been divisible enough to actually pay for anything and not enough people would have been able to use them. So the, the stone of Jordan was the kind of thing, well, while, while it was rare, you could still find like, you know, if you played a lot, you'd have like 50 of them kind of thing. Right. So, but you wouldn't have a hundred thousand. Right. So it, it found the right niche. And there's an interesting end to the story of the stone of Jordan because the scarcity component of that money changed and the market went on to understand that change. Yeah, exactly. So at some point, somebody found a way to dupe items and, uh, you know, basically print a whole bunch of new Stones of Jordan and whatever other items they wanted to print. And uh, so obviously they did, they did this and the scarcity of Stones of Jordan was completely ruined. And within the span of like two weeks, it went from a situation where everybody had, you know, if you, if you played a lot, you might have 50 of them kind of thing, like I said, to, you know, if you played a lot, you're going to have hundreds and hundreds two weeks later and that really just ruined its usefulness as money very quickly and that's very similar to what we're seeing with the canadian dollar it just happened a lot faster because they printed a lot faster and what ended up happening was that you know they they fixed the bug that allowed people to duplicate these items and later in another expansion a whole bunch of new items were added and other items which also met those criteria ended up becoming the new form of money. What's interesting about this uh, analogy and story for me is it's super similar to other examples of currency debasement of hard monies that happened in history. The one that really stands out for me is uh, Saifedean Amuth in the Bitcoin Standard talks a lot about rhinestones, which was an early form of money on the island of Yap. And this was 
they were sort of the same thing. It was it was a money system that was based on stones that were really hard to find and produce. And uh, for this reason, they had they had a, a lot of they met a lot of the criteria to be really great money, and the the uh, the economy prospered for a, like a really long time while uh, while these stones were rare and Europeans showed up and imported stones from another island and effectively did exactly the same thing and destroyed the scarcity component, which, which totally hooped the, the store value of the, of the money. Yeah, there's a great article uh, by Robert Breedlove called The Masters and Slaves of Money, which touches a lot on that very same concept of how the Portuguese used to uh, import glass beads that were used in North Africa for, uh, for currency. And they basically just had a better way to make glass beads in, in Portugal than the North Africans did. And that actually ended up driving a lot of the early European slave trade was that they were able to just like print this money again out of nowhere, out of very cheaply and easily produced glass beads, and then use that to buy, you know, slaves in this case. And yeah, that drove a lot of that, that early trade. The other thing that's interesting about what you mentioned there is the rye stones. Um, the rye stones are an example where, you know, they, they, they met that first criteria of money. They were very rare, but they're actually very bad at, at being money in a lot of other ways, right? Because they are not fungible at all. Every single one of them is different. And so it's kind of hard to determine, like, you know, if you have a, if you have one that's, they're, they're basically, for anybody who doesn't know, these big circular rocks that they've carved with the, with the hole in the middle. And, you know, if you have one that's like this big, like, how do you measure that against one that's twice as big, but half as thin or something like that? Right. And, and depending on where they were, if they were really big ones, they might be more valuable. Like if it was in the ocean sticking out of the ocean, it might be more valuable. So it, it really didn't perform, um, that, that portion of, of the necessary criteria for good money. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't fungible and then it wasn't divisible at all. So like, if you have a really big, valuable rye stone, like maybe you got the most valuable one, like, how do you even spend that? So it probably actually was a pretty big impediment to their economy in a lot of ways that it was not easily divisible, movable, or spendable. But that said, because of that one main criteria of it being scarce, it still beats the, the European version where they flooded the market and made it no longer scarce. So there's an interesting um, concept of moneyness. And, and it's kind of this idea that when when a currency itself is bad at doing this, uh, its main role, and people will start finding other ways to exchange value. And this creates this property of moneyness and things that weren't originally intended to be money. And uh, this is another thing that we're seeing all over the world today and totally in Canada. Things like, um, I don't know, expensive watches, baseball cards. Houses, you know, like, and they, they all have different properties, but what, what's part of what's happening is they're, they're absorbing store of value. They're, they're absorbing monetary premium that's leaking out of a, of currencies that, uh, have been printed so much that they, they can't perform that primary role anymore. Yeah. And it, it's leaking into everything. And, you know, we're, we're seeing pretty much everything used as a store of value because without, um, you know, what would be described commonly today as investing, uh, it's not really possible to do any kind of savings these days, right? So, you know, you've got the entire stock market is full of people's money who have no idea what they're investing in. Um, at best, it's like a lottery ticket, but, you know, what's your alternative? You put it in 
government bonds, you put it in a GIC, you put it in a savings account, and you're going to lose a ton of purchasing power. You know, we hear all these numbers that they report telling us, you know, it's catastrophic. We've hit seven, eight percent inflation. But I think anybody who's been to the grocery store knows that that's not true, right? Like our inflation rates have like my my completely non-analytical like finger in the air um guess at what our inflation rates is that we're we're somewhere in the like twenty to forty percent range annually over the last uh last three, four years kind of thing. And we've seen since the start of COVID just like an absolutely unprecedented uh level of money printing that is only really now starting to trickle into everything. And so pretty much every single thing that you can buy these days, it is starting to become um, some kind of a store of value. So the stock market, the real estate market, collectibles, people are, are hiding their money wherever they think they can get a return that's going to beat that, that inflation. And that's, that's something that, you know, even if everyone doesn't necessarily uh, get the same numbers and believe the same math, um, everyone can feel that. Right? We can all feel that crunch coming from the inflation. When you go to the, when you go to the store and like a, like a thing of grapes is like thirty five dollars. It's just like, what the hell, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you know, this idea of di- different currencies. So recently, um, Sailor Michael Saylor, who's one of the best minds in Bitcoin, was talking at a conference in Prague about the U.S. dollar for from. And for most of these qualities of money, among other fiat currencies, is still the best fiat currency. It's it's the most fungible. It's the most uh, the most liquid. And so the the rates of the different monies, all monies are not equal. And this is another thing I think it's, it's less obvious in the Western world because we do sort of trade. You know, we, we don't have a problem for the most part trading Canadian dollars for U.S. dollars. The, the rate of exchange will fluctuate, but um, these are accepted. It's accepted that they're all good monies, but our monies are not equal, and smaller monies are going to have a harder time earlier to absorb the same level of money printing for these same reasons, right? Of what would have happened in Diablo. Yeah, it's basically uh, like a, a race to the bottom in terms of the value of all of these fiat currencies, right? And- there, there's a few things that incentivize that race to the bottom, right? You've got all these countries around the world that have had their own currencies for a long time, and they've used their, uh, their monetary policy, their ability to create new dollars or new, new units of whatever their currency is as a way to make up for the fact that their fiscal policies are just wildly irresponsible. So essentially, they're printing money so that they can spend money. And when they, when they print that money, the value that they're able to spend doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from everyone else holding those dollars. So if all of a sudden, you know, if there were only $10 in the economy and you print one more, now there's 11, every single one of those dollars is worth 10% less. And at, at the broad scale, that's what we're seeing really all around the whole world. And like you mentioned, some countries are worse off than others. So you've got countries that have been doing this, this game of printing for a lot longer, like Argentina, uh, Lebanon, you know, we've seen ones that are already way off the cliff, like Zimbabwe and Venezuela that have already been hit by this extreme hyperinflation. And I think we're we're really on the verge of a lot more countries having those kind of issues because, you know, they, they've all got debts. Their debts are largely denominated in their own currency. And if they don't print the money while everyone else is printing the money, 
the the actual value of their debt is going to go way up. So it's it's like I said, it's a race to the bottom. And I I like the analogy of uh, like Wiley Coyote, where um, he he's chasing the roadrunner, he runs off the cliff, and he he's like hovering in midair for a second there because he hasn't realized that he's off the cliff and ready to fall yet. And that's kind of like where I see a lot of these countries and their their money printing is like they it's too late already. They're off the cliff. And they just haven't quite realized it yet. And so the full impact of all of this money printing hasn't really hit home. And, you know, we're lucky in Canada that we we do have very good purchasing power to begin with. But that's been that's been eroded very, very drastically. And I see a lot of the fiat currencies in the world going in that direction in the next, you know, five to 10 years, especially. And I wouldn't be surprised um, in that, in that sort of time period, five to 10 years, if the world ended up in a spot with drastically fewer currencies. So I think we're probably going to be in a, in a scenario where maybe like six or seven currencies in total will survive. And all of the rest, all of the small ones that are, are printing themselves into oblivion will essentially either switch to a regional currency or, you know, hopefully some of the smart ones will switch to Bitcoin. So I've already seen that in some areas where, um, you know, the South American countries, for example, like El Salvador is a good example. They, they did this a long time ago. Um, they just switched to the U.S. dollar entirely or, or U.S. dollar backed currencies. And that sort of, that, that does solve some things in their economy in the short term. It makes it so that uh, you know, it, it it does perform all of those secondary functions really well as compared to their their old currencies. And so you can verify it, you can transport it, you, you know, you can spend it pretty broadly. It's very recognized. And those things are super useful, but they lose that big tool that they've been using for years, which is the ability to print money to spend money, right? You can't, if you're El Salvador, you can't print US dollars. And so I think as countries are faced with that choice, as they're like, they, they realize that they're, they're losing that lever that they used to be able to use for unlimited spending. Um, you know, if, the, if they do take a rational look at like, what's the best kind of money for our country? Um, ultimately, at some point, one of them is going to choose Bitcoin because it is objectively the best money that we have right now. If we look at all of those properties that make, make a money useful, Bitcoin is the most meaningfully, provably, and permanently scarce form of money that we've ever had and it also does a very good job of all those other things you know it's divisible it's easily verifiable it's extremely easy to transport you can send any amount of money around the world in a matter of seconds um, and so you know it might be too much to hope that someday a politician somewhere makes a rational move but uh you know i i do think that eventually we're going to see uh one country adopt bitcoin uh not just as a legal tender, but fully as their only currency. And so that might look, and, that, and they, might put a, they might put a layer of fiat on top of that, much like we used to have with the gold standard, which backed the money that, uh, you know, early, early uh, American colonies or the British Empire had, for example. Um, we might see banknotes backed by Bitcoin, and that would be an improvement <clears throat> in that we can at least audit the Bitcoin. So it's very easily verifiable. And if the government says, if a government came out and said, hey, we, we've secretly purchased 600,000 Bitcoins, and that's now going to underpin our new national currency, which we're issuing with these banknotes, 
Um, and you can, you know, you can check the serial number versus the blockchain. Um, it, it would be a lot more easily verifiable form of fiat and it would prevent them from, from printing on top of that. And I think if a country does get to that, whichever country gets there may end up being like permanently one of the richest countries in the world. This is a really unique spot in history where there is already a massive transfer of wealth going on. And that transfer of wealth from those using soft money or, or bad money to hard money or good money is just going to be massive. And I think, you know, there's, there's a term in Bitcoin, um, I think it was by a guy named Parker Lewis, uh, gradually then suddenly. That's sort of how we're going to see Bitcoin adoption. But I could see if we do get a country adopting Bitcoin, um, you know, it's like, the, the one that I've always predicted is Argentina, which is actually looking like a good prediction right now. And if Argentina, for example, were to adopt Bitcoin and announce that, the resulting price move from that one announcement would probably make them look really smart. And, you know, you may see a flood of other countries running in to do the same, which in turn would, would bring more countries in, right? And so there, at some point, is going to be a rush from all of the, uh, the weaker monies, the easily printable monies to a form of money that does not allow the government to steal your time. Yeah, and it's, it's a funny thing because I, I find a lot of people just have a bristling of the idea of this because we've, we've all grown up in the world where the monopoly of money creation, it's like money is conferred its legitimacy by government's banks. That's how we know how the system works, and that's what everyone's comfortable with. But there are all kinds of examples of human behavior because it, like people just are act out of self-preservation and self-interest. And the Stone of Jordan is such a great example because I imagine that there were people who would have tried their best to continue trading in the Diablo gold and just had fewer and fewer people that were willing to accept the gold. And they would have like, why would you accept the gold if everyone is like, if the only thing other people want from you are stones of Jordan? So, so money does have this way of, um, being sort of emergent and self-emergent, uh, based on sort of co collective, collective opinion. Yeah. And that, that kind of rush away from bad money that I'm describing is just a natural reaction too. So, you know, when, when the debasement or the, the printing of the Stone of Jordan occurred and it started to lose its, its properties of good money, you know, everyone started to spend them as fast as they could, right? And it, it very quickly went from a, you know, a, a useful form of money to everyone starting to spend it as fast as they could to nobody even wants these anymore. And that is what we've seen in a bunch of countries. You know, your, your, your Venezuelan boulevards um, weren't, worth anything close to the paper they were printed on. And that's unfortunately, I think, something that a lot of a lot of countries are gonna have to reckon with is just a, a severe and in often cases really sudden change in the purchasing power of their of their money. And I think, you know, we we do a lot of stuff um like this podcast and all kinds of other stuff to help educate people on Bitcoin and try to, you know, we try to convince the people that we care about and and our, our friends and family, and we try to get people into what we see as a safe haven. But frankly, I think that the majority of people in the world um, 
are going to adopt Bitcoin more as a measure to, to avoid starving to death, to avoid having all their savings debased in, in a matter of days, rather than because of all the good information that Michael Saylor has out there, you know? And it, it's, not, it's not all of the reasons, but like, it, I think it's such a great reason why you look at the difference in how houses have appreciated in Canada versus the U.S. And, and part of the reason is their money is doing a better job. Like the flight to safety is less urgent in the U.S. Even though people are experiencing an issue, and it's just something that no, nobody's out there trumpeting this on TV. It just happens slowly on its own. And it's like the bubbling up of asset prices. Um, and it's, it's just so funny because we've been conditioned to collect more and more fiat. So most people are busy celebrating at all the money that they're making with their house prices going up. And what's actually happening is our dollar just buys less house. And uh, that's so long as houses are viewed as a safe store of value, a safer store of value than something else. Like these are, these are fluctuating things as a confused market is trying to figure out what money is. Yeah. And it, houses have started to take over some of the role of money for a long time now at this point, you know, my, my parents' generation, um, they bought the house they live in now in 1988 and it is about 15 times the value of what it was in 1988. and you know, I think this is probably something that anyone, you know, between the ages of like 25 and 50 can probably relate to is, you know, having their parents be like, buy a house. You know, it's like, look, it's, it's such a great investment. And a lot of people following that logic have not only bought a house, they bought two. And, uh, that, you know, that has been viewed as like a very sound, financially responsible thing to do with your money. And to me, that sounds completely insane because it really only f fulfills that one criteria of money and that could go away in an instant, right? So a house is not a good form of money. It's not easy to spend at all. <laughs> it's not exactly. easy. To yeah, exactly. And, and yet, because they've appreciated so much, um, you know, we, we, they're, they're part of what we consider money these days. They're a huge savings tool for people. And you know, they, they've historically beaten keeping your money in a GIC or keeping your money in, in the bank. And, uh, you know, that, that I think is, it's a super risky move that the risks are just not even remotely understood by those people investing in, in small scale real estate like that. Like it's the kind of thing where a black swan event of some kind, something that we don't expect, you know, could wipe that value out in, in, in minutes or, or, or overnight. And, I mean, especially in Canada, like there is, we have a temporary shortage of real estate, but there's no reason to believe that real estate is going to be scarce in Canada. We have the most land per person, like persons per square mile in the world. Or the, so there's tons of available space and we're building up more than ever. Like so that on its own is, um, should be something of, you know, and it's funny, like beyond that is this kind of like financialization of things. So houses aren't even just investments anymore. Now they're, you know, everyone's operating their own hotel, which is, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that financialization of things is also being driven by the money printing. All this money printing, uh, makes it easier to get a loan on a home. You know, we were in a period of like historically low interest rates where it was super easy to qualify for a home for a long time. That drove a lot of people to buy homes that were maybe outside of their their range and that in turn supported the value of those homes, right? And as more and more money is printed 
and funneled by the federal government into things like attempting to make housing affordable, all that really does is move some of the properties of money away from the dollar and to the real estate market, right? We're seeing that really drastically right now with the shortage that we're talking about where we've got this like unprecedented flood of immigration into Canada and, you know, the government is providing a lot of housing. Government is paying for a lot of housing. I don't know if you've, if you've tried to stay in a hotel in, in Western Canada the last three, four months, but like the prices of hotels are through the roof because they're just completely full and the government's paying for those rooms. And that in turn is driving that, that fuel to this, this temporary shortage of housing, driving up rents, which in turn drives up mortgages. And, uh, you know, that, that store of value that people are looking for in their money is moving from the dollar over to housing in this case, you know, in a way that's not even intended. Yeah, it really is a massive law of unintended consequences thing where the poorer money is at doing, at performing its base level functions, the weirder symptoms you start to see cropping up in, in commerce and culture. Yeah, it, it distorts just about every incentive system in our society. And when the incentive is not to have money as a store of value, when the incentive is to hold a home as a store of value, it, it causes housing to completely decouple from its, its usefulness, right? Like there, there's like a utility value to having a house where you can live in it. But that is so far removed because the vast majority of the value of the entire real estate market comes from speculation and investing these days. And so if that part goes away and it, you know, houses return to the value of what they're actually worth, uh, we're going to see a totally different real estate market. Mm-hmm. You have a funny story about making an offer on a house based on yes. its utility value. <laughs> this is this is the condo that I'm in right now that I rent, and uh, it went up for sale a couple of years ago. And the guy's like, "Make me an offer," and I was like, "I don't think you're gonna like my offer." He's like, "Make me one anyway." And I think this ended up selling for around six hundred and fifty thousand dollars was the actual price. But I was like, you know what? I I did my my own like finger in the air math, and I was like, what do I think this place is actually worth as a utility? And I offered him a hundred and 150,000 or something like that. And that, that's, that's what I think it's probably actually worth. And, uh, you know, obviously I was way off of what, what the speculators were willing to pay. And it was literally purchased by a speculator. It's now owned by like just a random individual in China who rents it out. Mm. I mean, and this is the thing, you, people can laugh at this if they're listening, but like you can get a, a two bedroom condo in Buffalo, New York for 150 grand today, no problem. Where the money, where the flight away from the money has been less urgent. Yeah. Yeah. And you can even, you can see that in our, our Canadian cities, even where the effect of fiat has been much greater on Toronto, Vancouver, especially hasn't hit us quite as hard in places like Calgary and Edmonton, but, and, and, and you know, in Kelowna, obviously another big one driven property prices driven by money printing. And we haven't really seen as much of that. And you can kind of correlate that to the way the culture is in those places too, right? Like the, the culture, like Toronto to me is like the ultimate fiat culture. You know, it's just, it's a city of bankers where everything is kind of superficial. Everything is just for show. There, there's a lot more sizzle than there is steak. And that I think is driven by, you know, they're just, they're closer to the spigot. They're closer to the money printers. They get more free money in Toronto than we get here. And that erodes the it erodes the pricing of everything in the market from real estate to, to food, and it erodes our culture when there isn't the link 
that money is supposed to provide. There's supposed to be a link between a person's efforts or how hard they work and the outcome to their lives. And that link is, is significantly eroding. And I think that that link has eroded a lot more in some of those big, uh, super liberal cities that has in, in places where we don't see as much of the benefits of the money printing. Yeah, Toronto, uh, from afar, it seems like it's on the event horizon of the uh, yeah singularity in Canada, for sure. So there's a difference between having scarce money and having money that is absolutely scarce. And this, this is kind of where I wanted to go with the conversation. It's a really big idea. And um, it takes a long time to wrap your mind around the, the ramifications of what having a money that is provably absolutely scarce are. And maybe just give me your rundown on what you think absolute scarcity, how is the best way to start to understand it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting because for a lot of human history, uh, gold was our best form of money due to its very high degree of scarcity. It was, there, there was a lot of a lot of gold that was very easy to find once upon a time. You could go into a river and find a big nugget of it in California or Alaska. But it's pretty safe to say that most of the very easy to find gold all over the world has been found. And so it becomes harder and harder to produce more gold, which made it a very good form of money. What makes it a worse form of money than Bitcoin, and that gets down to this absolute scarcity, is that the supply can respond to the demand. So if uh, if the price of gold were to go to $10,000 an ounce next week, we would start to see a lot more gold mine. There'd be a lot more gold mines. It'd be financially viable. There'd be a lot more money invested into mining more gold because at that price, it's a lot more profitable to mine and sell gold. And so, you know, that, that added supply should in time account for that added demand that drove it up to $10,000 an ounce, right? And where Bitcoin is different is that it doesn't matter how high the price of Bitcoin goes. It's, it's issuance schedule is absolutely fixed. And so, you know, if and we, we, we see the same kind of thing when the price of Bitcoin goes up, more money gets invested to mine it because there are, there are greater margins. There's more, you know, it, it's more profitable to mine and sell a Bitcoin just like it is with gold. But the difference is when more Bitcoin miners come in, they don't actually create more Bitcoin than was scheduled to be created. So that's the, that's the main important thing is that the issuance schedule, the rate at which new Bitcoin comes out is 100% fixed. And that's the most important detail that, you know, we all agree on with Bitcoin. We've got all these rules that make up what Bitcoin is. And what the Bitcoin miners are doing is essentially allowing us to agree on those rules every 10 minutes. And I would say, and I think most people would agree with me that the single most important rule of all of those consensus rules that make up Bitcoin is that issuance schedule that gives it its scarcity. We know exactly what the issuance has got to be based on on time and uh, the number of blocks that come out. And being able to predict that is, is what makes Bitcoin, you know, the best form of money in the long term that we, we've ever seen. So if you think about, it's like, Regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of what emergencies or unforeseen things are going uh, occur, uh, we can't make any more money. We can't make any more Bitcoin. It doesn't matter that we got a flat tire; that there isn't going to be any more Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. And that 
that that example is is pretty poignant, I think, because that's kind of what we've seen over the last uh, you know the last hundred years. But they've really, really learned it recently, and they're starting to do it very effectively. Is that they've noticed that um, you know a crisis of some kind gives them the social license to print a bunch of money, and that has really changed a lot about global politics and a lot about how countries make those kind of decisions. And you know, there's a quote. Um, I, I think this is a safety quote uh, that Bitcoin is the technology that will finally end World War One. You know, for a long time, for most of human history, um, wars would end when one country ran out of money. And nowadays, that's not really possible. You know, if, if, if you were in the, in the 1500s and the King of England had to go to the populace and say, hey, you know, we really want to wrap up this war with France, uh, we're going to need some more taxes. Now you've got a very direct decision where the, the populace is like, wait a minute, that war with France doesn't help us at all. Do we really want to pay these taxes? And when you're, you're thrusting that, uh, that, that theft, really that, that choice to obey or disobey with the taxes that the, the powers that be are levying, um, as a tax, it's a very direct, you know, affront. People would not put up with this. If it was, if we were seeing the kind of money printing that we're seeing out of the United States right now to fund the war in the Ukraine, and that came with the tax hike every single time they, <laughs> They added a trillion dollars to the deficit. Um, you know, th- they'd be they'd be lynched in the streets like a year ago, probably. And with the tool of money printing, they're accomplishing the same thing. They're they're taking the value from the people and using it for their own um, that their own devices. And that um, that sort of crisis narrative is a lot easier to sell when you don't have to pay for it directly. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of well-meaning collectivists in the world who want to make the world a better place and who see the suffering and uh, a need of others. And they, they say things like, we should do something about this. And there's a lot loaded into that word we. Because it's like, what do you mean we? And what they actually mean by we is that the government, um, with the mandate of the people, should be taking the money from the people and using it to spend how they're, they're decided. And it's very easy for them to offer that kind of an opinion because they don't have the direct connection to the money that they're not, that, to, the, to, to the spending power that they're losing, right? And if, you know, if everyone saw the impact of every single government spending decision on their own purchasing power, it would be it would be a drastically different world. We wouldn't put up with the kind of absolutely insane wastefulness that we see out of our governments these days. Yeah, fifty million dollars to build an app for tracking people coming in and out of the country that could have been done for fifty thousand. Yeah, and it's it, you know the taxes are such a great example too because you know in most countries, including the one we're in, you it's not an option to pay tax. So we're we're this is a this is a a function of the society that we live in and it's the way it is. And so it, it matters. And then this is where, you know, Bitcoin has this really cool opportunity for people who understand what it does just by existing. Like it doesn't need to be a uh, violent revolution. It's an alternative mechanism. And it, it's the money, like you said at the opening, where the core principle of that money is the rate that it's created 
can never be changed and the total amount that will ever be available can never be changed. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the core function of the state or like a government is really to provide physical safety and property rights for its people. And that's where the idea of, you know, collective defense and the collectivism behind a state really formed was the idea that we needed to protect our capital. And that idea has been expanded so drastically. And the, um, the responsibility for what, what the government should actually be doing has been delegated so, so completely to the point where, you know, we have really no choice in the matter at this point. You know, we've got a government who is elected by a very small minority of Canadians. I think something like, like 15% of Canadians actually voted for Trudeau to get him in there. Uh, who's supported by even fewer Canadians and, you know, is making decisions that impact all Canadians. And we don't have that choice of whether we support his spending decisions. And I think ultimately what Bitcoin does is it removes that power for them to tax us without our permission. Mm -hmm. As long as you don't spend your Bitcoin. As long as you don't spend your Bitcoin, yeah. We're not breaking any laws here. There's... <laughs> Uh, yeah. So then if you just expand that idea out a little bit and what do you think this concept of absolute scarcity and the availability of an absolutely scarce money means for currencies and governments? Well, I think in the long term, you know, I was uh, predicting the death of most of the fiat currencies in the world. Um, after we get to seven, we're eventually going to get to one. And that I view as kind of an inevitable outcome because the, the hard money eats the soft money and the monies of the world, you know, the, the, those in charge of printing these different kinds of fiat currencies don't really have a reverse lever. You know what I mean? They can't unprint this money. The dollar buyback program. Yeah, exactly. And they're all, um, they're all part of this, this machine of, you know, ever increasing spending, eternal war, um, you know, they, they can't turn off the spigot and it doesn't matter who we get into office. If we get uh, conservative politicians, fiscally conservative into, into office, they, they can't just turn around and go back to 2019 spending levels. It's just not going to fly. And 2019 spending levels were wildly unsustainable and now they've tripled. So it's, it's a completely unsustainable situation. And the only way that they have to, you know, to proceed and I, it's, it's not a way out of this problem. It's a way for them to, to keep their own power base and continue along on the gravy train that they're on. The only thing that they can really do is to print more money and spend more money. You know, I expect that uh, we're going to see a pretty drastic attempt from the Trudeau liberals when we have our election coming up in two years here to essentially bribe their way into an election victory like they did in the first place um, with, with just wild, you know, unsustainable spending promises that are backed by the assumption that they're going to continue to print money at this exorbitant rate. And, you know, I think the existence of Bitcoin in the long term removes that lever. And those who print more now, the faster you print, the sooner your currency is going away, essentially. And like I mentioned at the start, it's a race to the bottom. And Canada is kind of like in the middle of the pack in terms of the race to the bottom. You know, there's, there's definitely some countries that are worse off than we are. But we are not in a good situation in terms of money printing. We, we've outprinted almost every Western country in terms of percentage of money supply created. And uh, I think what that's going to mean is that 
at some point, even though it's not going to be politically sustainable, they're, they're, they're just going to start falling apart and they're not going to be able to pay for all of this endless spending and endless, uh, essentially bribes to the population to keep them in, in power. At the long term, that's going to mean a drastic reshuffling of what it means to be a government. And I, I see a lot of what is provided by the government moving into the private sector. You know, all of, all of the many shady charitable efforts that the government funds that come with very poor accountability and a whole bunch of overhead and a whole bunch of administration, um, that kind of stuff is just not going to be possible under a hard money standard because the, the government isn't going to be able to borrow an unlimited amount of money anymore because they can't just create the money out of nowhere. Yeah, and so it's, it's kind of like, I think that the, the concept of money printing, I would say, flew under almost everybody's radar, even in, until sometime after Bitcoin existed. And it's just, it's just really now, as inflation has started to become painful for, enough for people to pay attention. But you know, there, was, there was 50 or 70 years, certainly 50 since Nixon and the gold standard, where there was no fixed point of reference in financial space. So if every currency is expanding, you're just, you're just viewing your expanding currency. You're, you're looking at the other expanding currencies and, uh, you know, but everything's moving. It's like a bunch of balls floating. And so if we, you know, people are aware of the ones that have really blown up and failed. And, you know, we think, Oh, that sucks for them. And like, meanwhile, while that's going on, like our own balloon is floating away too. So now we have this fixed point in financial space where it will never move. And so you're free to continue blowing your balloon up, but it's just going to blow. It's just going to rise farther and farther away from that one currency that everyone in the world has access to. And uh, everyone in the world is suffering from the same problem. And then, so this is kind of why I'm, I'm trying to, trying to get to relate back to, well, what, what, why does, so what? There's, there's one really hard money available, but the, the whole world is, uh, ma- uh, a, ma- a macrocosm of what would have happened in Diablo. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's becoming more poignant for people. Inflation used to be like something that old people complain about. You know what I mean? It's like back in my day, I could get a Coke for 10 cents. And that was kind of, I remember as a kid, kind of like interesting and a little bit surprising to me. But the fact that that, you know, that tenfold inflation that had happened since my parents' time to, to, to my time as a child, um, that didn't strike me as a massive theft that it actually is. And I think we're getting to a point where a lot more people are starting to feel the crunch from inflation. You know, the, the main things that it's hitting are housing and food that are, are, are hurting a lot of people. And we have people that were, you know, already harmed by COVID, uh, by the, the, the restrictions and the uh, damage done to our economy by our, our world governments. And coming right out of that, um, now they're losing their spending power. And so the number of people in, in Canada, which is like, you know, we're, we're in the Western world, we're a relatively rich country. Um, the number of people here who are really not okay as compared to like 2018 is, is, is drastically increased. And I think that, um, that has really changed the way that conversations about inflation have been going. You know, I remember talking to people about inflation back then, and it was the kind of thing that, that people were aware of. And, you know, broadly people were even aware that, 
the official inflation numbers were probably not real, but nobody was really mad about it back then. And now people are mad about it. When you talk to somebody about inflation, like they've lost their purchasing power and they know it at this point. Like everyone knows it and everyone can feel it. And if you're not feeling the crunch of inflation, it's because you are just one of those fiat bankers, money printers, the people who sit next to the spigot who benefit the most from the money printing. But vast majority of people who are not benefiting from the money printing so directly are feeling a very significant crunch. And, you know, that's that's only going to be okay with them for so long. And we, did, we didn't have tent cities in every city in Canada five years ago. We did. Yeah, it's, it's completely... It's a completely different country. Like the, the, the scope of homelessness, the scope of helplessness that has washed across our economy. You know, you've got, you've got these tent cities that are, are full of people, but the much, much bigger group of people are the like the non-homeless working poor who were middle class five years ago and now are just barely scraping by. Like that, that's the group of people that have lost the most, I think, in terms of like, how inflation has actually affected their lives and their lifestyle, their ability to provide for their families and their ability to, to, to have a good life without the, uh, you know, the, the risk of, of losing everything, the, the worry of being homeless that hangs over the heads of a, of a lot of people these days. And that is, you know, we're, we're in that wily e. Coyote moment. We're, we're off the cliff. Like it's just a matter of time before everyone realizes it and um, something has to be done. And, you know, I think the, the sort of money printing machine, the globalists, the state have done a pretty good job up until now of like knowing how far they can push and knowing how much they can steal. And they've gone too far this time. They've stolen more than the population will allow them to. And so I think we're going to see a big sort of switch back to a lot more conservative politicians, a lot more populist politicians across the world. I see that as like a, like a stopgap. You know, it's going to appease some of the people, but it's not going to slow down the fundamentals. It's not going to change the fact that those printed dollars are out there and that they, they have to keep printing more or they have to drastically reduce the scope of services that the government provides. And, you know, that's not a winning election platform. Yeah. And they, they, there is a coordinated effort to gaslight as many people as possible by, by telling people that inflation is coming down. And what, how that gets misunderstood is that prices are coming down. Prices are never coming down. That, is, that, that ship has sailed. It's just the rate at which prices are going up may slow down. They're different. And so, but, but that's not how it's communicated in the media. They, you know, it's like, they, they are talking to us about getting inflation under control. And I think a lot of people, they're hearing what they're hoping they're hearing, which is return to sanity. But that's, that's not what it is. I want to ask you a question about something you said there. And none of this is financial advice, but you, you mentioned an important thing. It's, it's the working class poor that probably, not probably, that, that, need to, that most need to understand Bitcoin. But a lot of those people will have a lot of hesitation because disposable income is tough. It, and what I hear a lot is, you know, it's this idea of it's too risky. I'm going to lose all, I'm going to lose what I do, what I do have. And, um, can you just, you know, give me your thoughts on like, what should somebody who's struggling to just make it today 
why why should they be thinking about Bitcoin? Yeah, it's uh, it is a tough choice there, right? And you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna buy some Bitcoin over putting food on the table. Right? There, that nobody's gonna make those choices. Um, I think the important thing for people to think about when considering Bitcoin as a savings tool, as a hedge to all this money printing, is that it's a long-term savings tool. So if there's money that you need in the next six months um, and the purchasing power of that money is very important to you, then you know Bitcoin's probably not the best solution because there is a big gamble there inherent in putting your money in Bitcoin you know, it moves significantly relative to the dollar on a fairly short-term basis all the time. And so, you know, if you have $100,000 in your bank account, um, you're probably going to lose 20% of your purchasing power in the next year. Um, if you have $100,000 of Bitcoin, you know, you might gain 50%, you might lose 50%. And both of those are totally rational and reasonable expectations within the next year in terms of Bitcoin price. Mm-hmm. So it is risky. Um, that said, there has never been a time when buying Bitcoin and waiting five years was not a, a significantly good decision from the perspective of purchasing power. And, you know, I, I, I believe that that absolute scarcity we've discussed is going to continue to drive Bitcoin's price up in the long term relative to the dollar, but it is going to be a bumpy ride. And mm-hmm. so that said, you know, for, for people of a very low income, um, because it is such an outsized opportunity, you know, we've seen Bitcoin be the single most uh, effective asset for investing and saving over the last, you know, 14 years. Um, very small amounts of money put into Bitcoin spread out over time can actually make a big difference. And so, you know, some people are living so, so hand to mouth that they can't spare a dollar and that they're, they're squeezing everything out and, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, I obviously would not tell people to drop your, mm-hmm. <laughs> drop your, uh, your food for your kids and invest in Bitcoin. But for a lot of people, um, even, even people in that working poor, there, there's like, there are small amounts of disposable income that, you know, if you, if you have a, a Tim Hortons every day mm-hmm. and change that to making coffee at home, um, you know, you might save like $10 a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, $10 a week over the course of a long period of time can really add up, especially when you add into the fact that the, the appreciation that we've seen over the last 14 years has been such a, such a drastic thing. And if we do see one of these hyperinflation scenarios that we've been describing with our own currency, which at this point seems quite likely, the $10 a week that you put into uh into Bitcoin instead of Tim Hortons could end up being like, could end up being your retirement. Mm-hmm. It's, I would say, an outsized opportunity to remove some portion of the wealth you create from the risks of fiat money printing. Yeah. It's the only thing that you can buy in the world where whatever you buy as a percentage of the total amount that will ever be available is provable and will never change. And that on its own, in a world where they're making more and more money, everyone who's making money is making more money. It's really something to think about. And there's one last thing I want to ask about. Um, for people who think, I, Bitcoin's too expensive. I can't afford a Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's one of the good, um, the good features of Bitcoin is that it's very divisible. So, uh, at the base layer on chain is divisible to eight decimal places. So it can go to a much lower value than the dollar can, for example, right now. We can trade fractions of a cent in Bitcoin if we wanted to. And uh, somebody could buy one cent worth of Bitcoin. So that's totally possible. Um, you know, buying a very small amount of Bitcoin, like $10 a week, um, would probably make the most sense on a side chain like the Lightning Network. Um, there, there's some some considerations there, but... Uh, you know, you can buy absolutely any amount. You don't need to buy a full Bitcoin. And I think that sort of scares people off a little bit. And and one of the things that does is it drives them towards the casino coins, which is the, the term that I'm trying to trying to use now because all these other coins out there, that's basically what they are. They're they're a gamble. And there's no fundamentals behind them any more so than the roulette table has fundamentals behind it. And you're you're basically just entering a lottery when you buy one of those coins. And you are not achieving the same thing that you achieve with Bitcoin because in every single one of those cases, there is somebody who can, and in most cases does, decide to change the supply of the coin. There's someone in charge. And the fact that there's no one in charge of Bitcoin is extremely useful. So I would say, like, don't worry about the size that you get. Get whatever Bitcoin you can. Get $10 and, and then get another $10. And... Uh, don't get any of those other coins because that that trap of thinking that you missed Bitcoin is uh, is a big one, and that's that's a funny story there actually because I the first time that somebody told me they missed Bitcoin was Bitcoin had just gone from one dollar to fourteen dollars, and they're like, oh, I can't believe I missed it, and I didn't really like I didn't really know whether they'd missed or not at that point, and then. Um, you know, Bitcoin crashed from $14 to $3 at some point in the next couple of weeks. And I had another conversation where somebody was like, oh, I can't believe it's dead. And I've had those exact same conversations of, I can't believe I missed it. I can't believe it's dead. Every time it goes up and every time it goes down with different people at different price points. And none of them missed it. Like I remember, I remember telling people when it was 3000 bucks, I'm like, it seems high now, but you didn't miss it. And, uh, and I would say the same thing now, like you didn't miss it. The the number of people uh, that have ever bought Bitcoin is still a, a very small minority of of the public. And a lot of those people are buying it as uh, as a gamble, a speculation on on the attempt to sell it for more dollars in the future. And at some point, we're going to hit an inflection point where instead of gambling on it to try to sell for more dollars later, a huge number of people are, are going to start holding Bitcoin as their intended final form of money. You know, I don't have any intention to sell my Bitcoins for dollars because they're like, at what point would that be a good idea? It's just not going to be a good idea. Like it, it never makes sense to go back to allowing government to steal my value. Nobody listening to this conversation has missed Bitcoin. Yeah. It, yeah. There's no way to miss it. Yeah. Bitcoin is money. And Bitcoin is better money. Maybe we'll wrap there, Dave. How can we, uh, if anybody wants to find you or find your work, is there, uh, how do they do that? Yeah, well, a uh, very important detail that I did not point out at the start was that I'm also widely known as the strongest and best looking Bitcoin entrepreneur in Canada. That is important. People can find uh, more info about that on my website at bitcoinbrains.com. And uh, I can also be found on Twitter as Bitcoin Brains. And uh, yeah, 
you know, feel free to reach out if you have any, uh, any, any questions or thoughts about Bitcoin and, and want to discuss. I'm always good for a rant. Dave, thanks for your time, man. This is great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting BlockRewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at ParamountBenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 